and thank you all for your invitation to be with you. Uh, it's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, of all days, of all hours, that I agreed to a Ripon speech is the day and the hour that uh, the Ways and Means Committee finally takes up the three pending trade agreements. <laughs> and we're voting on them. Uh, and so uh, we just voted on the first, first one, the, uh, the uh, a Panama Agreement, uh, which um, uh, the real contention really was whether or not we're going to attach the, uh, uh, the training assistance money that we often fund at the federal level to any of the trade agreements. And the first attempt was to attach it to the Panama Trade Agreement. Uh, breaking news, it failed on partisan lines, um, but the support for the trade agreement was there and it moved forward. So now we're starting discussion on Korea and hopefully uh, it will get strong bipartisan support and I won't have to get yanked out of here too early. But anyways, I apologize for walking in late. That's the reason why I was not here uh, at noon when I was planning to be. Um, I'm going to just give you a brief update on where I see things uh, on my committee and, and here in the next couple of weeks in Washington, and then I look forward to your questions to kind of guide the discussion. I mentioned uh, trade. Uh, that's the topic of uh, my subcommittee that I fought to get on on, on uh, Ways and Means. Um, you know, uh, uh, when I ran for Congress two years ago, I told then uh, my, Minority Leader John Boehner that I was coming to Congress and I wanted to get on Ways and Means. And he kind of chuckled. And his next question was, how old are you? <laughs> I was 26 at the time. And uh, he says, well, he says, there's a long, long line of people that want to get on that committee. So he says, you might have to wait your turn. And uh, I said, well, that's fine. But I said, I think we're going to be back in the majority sooner rather than later. And with that comes additional seats. And I want to know what I got to do to get on the committee. And he says, well, you know, we, you all know him. You can imagine this conversation. You know, well, we need more women on the committee. We need more people from these states on the committee. And I said, with all due respect, Mr. Speaker, I said, uh, our, our party doesn't support uh, uh, affirmative action or quotas. So I said, <laughs> why would we give out our top committee spots based on that? And I said, if you're going to tell me somebody's smarter, that's fine. If you're going to tell me somebody's better equipped, that's fine. But don't tell me because I'm not a woman or I'm not from the right state, I can't get on the committee. And he said, well, I've never heard it explained that way before. <laughs> so needless to say, uh, I set out on a very aggressive uh, campaign within a campaign to win his support and that of the uh, leadership committee. And I'm, I'm proud to say that we were able to do it after one term. And even more excited now to be in the majority and to be making progress on one of the important issues right now, which is trade. Why am I so adamant about this? Well, you could suggest that it's politically smart for me to be uh, an ad outspoken proponent of trade. I come from a district that is one of the 60 districts left in this country, which is ag dominant, which means the number one employer in my district uh, is agriculture. And there is no industry in this country who benefits greater than agriculture from a strong uh, and vibrant trade uh, throughout the world. Important facts that I think oftentimes people are not aware of, and that is that uh, every country with which we have a free trade agreement with, we have a dramatic trade surplus. We only lose to those countries with which we do not have free trade uh, and to those countries which uh, are not really on a level playing field with us. That is something I find when I'm out in my district people oftentimes are not aware of. They think of China 
They think of the large amount of energy we buy from the Middle East or uh, other countries, and they don't realize the fact that every country we have entered into a trade agreement with, we win. And I, I further suggest that it takes quite a defeatist mentality to believe that American ingenuity uh, and competitiveness uh, cannot outperform those in the foreign markets. And if you believe in America's work ethic and ingenuity, then you would believe that we need to get a free trade agreement with as many countries as possible because at the end of the day, only 5% of the world's population lives in our country, and so it only makes sense that we sell with the other 95% of the world. The second largest employer in my district, of course, is Big Yellow, Caterpillar Tractor Company, uh, which uh, second largest market in Latin America is Colombia, even though they're at a competitive dis disadvantage with Komatsu and their world competitors who sell their goods into that market now tariff-free. And on the average, each tractor sold from my district to that country uh, has about a $100,000 price disadvantage. Uh, obviously, Panama and South Korea are also very important to both ag and uh, manufacturing. Another interesting statistic I like to talk about with ag relation uh, related is uh, our, our uh, time out on trade or basically our inability to pass these agreements really have cost us jobs and economic growth in our country. Just within the ag industry alone, in wheat, for example, um, in 2001, 60% of Colombian wheat that was consumed was American wheat. Uh, and today, just under 20% of that wheat that Colombians consume is Americans' wheat. Now, whose wheat are they buying? Well, they're buying Canada's because Canada has moved quicker, quicker than us and has entered into a very effective trade agreement, uh, and they're now beating us at our own game uh, of competition in the world market. So for so many reasons, it makes sense for us to make haste, uh, to pass these, and as the President says, to try and double exports uh, in the coming years, you've got to have more trade agreements in order to do it. So I'm optimistic that's going to happen. The, the sticking point is going to be on TAA. And um, one of the reasons why Republicans are so adamant about fighting the attempt to attach TAA to trade agreements, uh, politics aside, is that it violates uh, the fast-track uh, law that allows these trade bills to come to the floor for an up-and-down vote. So whether you agree with TAA or not, uh, if you want them to be fast-tracked in an up-or-down vote, you simply have to oppose these attempts to put non-germane language attached to the trade agreement bills. I happen to be a proponent of TAA. I think the majority of the Republican conference is, although uh, there is some uh, discussion among uh, the more conservative flank of our party that do not believe we should be providing this kind of assistance. And so I think for a number of reasons, leadership believes it's important for a straight up or down vote on, on TA, and I, I anticipate that's what's going to happen. Um, tax reform, which is the other uh, big issue that our, I'm hoping to play a part of in our committee. Uh, Chairman Camp has done a great job of, of having the hearings discussing tax simplification. It's been very interesting to me to see the uh, convergence of business, labor, um, Main Street, Wall Street all come together and say, look, we're willing to take our credits, throw them out the window in exchange for a lower overall rate. Um, again, for a manufacturer in my hometown of Cat in Peoria to say we're willing to give up the research and development tax credit, which is very, very important to them, in exchange for an overall rate reduction, uh, I think speaks volumes. What it's going to require is that all of us put our sacred cows on the table. 
Um, and uh, I, I have not been shy about going back to my district every weekend and explaining what this exactly means to my constituents because, of course, uh, everybody wants less government, just not their government. And so it's very interesting to hear my constituents talk about uh, rate reductions, tax simplification, uh, and ethanol subsidies. <laughs> so uh, I actually uh, have tried to lead on that particular issue and working with uh, my colleague Christy Nome and have introduced uh, what is now a bipartisan bill to phase out the subsidy for the ethanol industry. Uh, taken some criticism from some of my folks back home, uh, but quite frankly, um, there are many in my district. In fact, the largest operator of ethanol plants in my district have a, the congressional district in Illinois with the most number of ethanol plants operating in it. And uh, the majority of those operators have s signed on in support of this legislation, which will basically over the next year invest um, about 1.3 billion of the two and a half billion that it costs each year in deficit reduction, uh, and then the other 1.2 billion of that that two and a half billion in basically infrastructure investment. So uh, credits for gasoline stations to put in blender pumps so people can buy E10, E15, E20, or all the way up to E85 if you so wish, um, as well as investments in cellulosic and other things. So. Um, I'm optimistic that we can, um, we can get a deal on that because uh, at the end of the day what I have instructed or tried to educate my ethanol friends back home is that every vote we've had on the issue of ethanol in particular in this Congress we've lost. So you can either come to the table in good faith and try and negotiate something to phase it out or you're probably going to lose is my expectation at the end of this year when assuming we don't get tax simplification yet an extension of all rates as they currently are. I think that's one that might get picked on. So as we move forward, I think it's important that all of us step up, regardless of our specific industry, and recognize the fact that if we are going to have a simplified tax code, it's going to require some of these sacred cows um, uh, to meet their maker and, uh, <laughs> and uh, hopefully at the end of the day make America more competitive on a global scale. Um, with that, I would just add for the multinationals in this room, it appears that we will not be pushing a tax holiday for repatriation. This is something I think at the start of the year there was the momentum for, and then many of the multinationals came in and met with us on the committee and said, look, we don't want to take uh, the pressure out of the room for you all to do a long-term fix, and so do us a favor and don't give us a holiday, but rather uh, fix the problem, either moving towards a ter territorial system or some better blended form that we have now uh, to make us more competitive and allow us to bring more of these earnings back to the United States of America. My Democratic colleagues were actually very interested in a, in a tax holiday, which I was surprised by. The debate there really was whether or not we were going to allow the multinationals to bring the money back and do whatever they wanted with it or whether we were going to allow them to bring it back and have to invest it in infrastructure or capital improvements or something of that nature. Um, but that discussion has ceased at this point and we all seem to be in agreement that we want a, a long-term fix. I believe at the end of the day the only way tax simplification happens is if the president exercises presidential leadership um, and makes it a priority, much the same way as President Ronald Reagan did in his 1984 campaign and that subsequently le led to the, the bill that passed in 1986. So uh, I would suggest that that we will actually vote on something 
uh, probably either in President Obama's first year of his second term or the first year of a new president's term, depending on your political view. Uh, so that's tax, tax reform, tax simplification. Um, let's see. Uh, Another piece of legislation that I'm, that I'm working on with regards to energy is to try and incentivize more uh, renewable uh, uh, energy. Um, I believe, obviously, in the tax code is the best incentivizer. It's one of the reasons why I'm on the committee I'm on. And uh, I think we ought to move towards uh, putting the maximum amount of, of emphasis on uh, new renewable energy, uh, something akin to a 0% rate for the production of new renewable energies. Um, I think you would have a, a, a serious amount of investment by the private sector uh, if they knew that earnings that they uh, earned on the production of new renewable energies or technologies that produce new renewable energies uh, would enjoy a, a 10 or 20 year holiday uh, would be far better than some of my colleagues on the other side who are suggesting a significant amount of investment uh, grants, government, a subsidized investment in new renewable energy. Uh, with really no guarantee that there's market application for those technologies that are being invested in. And if you believe in the free market and consumers driving those decisions as best, then I would suggest uh, providing the, 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 the lowest level of tax rate or the highest amount of incentive on that industry and letting the free market invest and come up with those uh, products that consumers will buy and actually use. Um, finally, uh, the debt limit. Uh, this, I think, will be probably one of the toughest votes that any member of Congress is going to have to vote or, to, or take in the coming, coming weeks. Um, I was not here for uh, TARP. I was a candidate for office when that was being debated and ultimately voted on. And I will tell you in talking to my colleagues who were here for that vote, they're suggesting to me that this is even more difficult than TARP. So um, all I would say is watch, wait, and we'll all learn because uh, uh, I went to the conference this morning and I'm not any more confident that, that there's a deal yet. Uh, there's all this talk in the media about 50-50 chance there's going to be one this week. Um, I will tell you that uh, I do believe there's a huge disconnect between uh, the who's who and whoville, Wall Street, and I don't mean Wall Street in a derogatory sense, I mean that in terms of uh, uh, you know, when I'm in Chicago and I'm meeting with the chairman of a bank or the chairman of a company, they'll talk to me about many things, and then, of course, the closing statement is, now you guys are going to get around to raising the debt limit, right? And there's just a basic assumption that there's going to be a deal and this thing's going to happen. And I think, for a number of reasons, that's the basic assumption that our leadership has taken as well, which may be a fair assumption except the fact that I think um, it is very politically difficult for many members of the conference, especially on our side of the aisle, to vote for the debt limit increase. And so um, understanding the political realities that we're in, that we control one half of one third of the government, is something unfortunately that most of our constituents do not recognize. I will tell you when I go home there's a great anticipation and expectation that by God I should be able to get done what they sent me there for. And, and that, you know, we won in November. Well, we won one half of one third of the government. And I try and drill that in at every Rotary, Kiwanis, and town hall that I'm in because people don't quite understand that there are split powers here 
that nobody's going to get everything that they want. But in, in light of that, um, any deal that does not have a balanced budget amendment, uh, a, a, uh, a change in entitlement spending, which basically will, will bend that curve for the long term and show that we can, we can start putting ourselves on a path towards balancing the budget, uh, and immediate cuts, which is something that I would argue the CRs failed to do, um, without those, it's going to be very, very difficult for members on our sides to step up to the plate and cast that tough vote. And I do not envy the speaker uh, and his, uh, his role to come into the conference when, that, when he feels he's got a deal and try and sell it, because I think it is going to be a tough, tough thing to do. Um, and at the end of the day, I think m most of us in the conference are prepared to do the right thing, no matter how unpopular it might be. But at the end of the day, we have to be able to go home and sell it to our constituents and explain it. And uh, if you don't do entitlement reform and you don't do significant immediate cuts, I'm not sure how you justify a $2 trillion increase in spending, which basically puts off the inevitable, which is you're going to have to do some fundamental reform at some point. Uh, you've just extended the credit card limit a little bit longer, but you're going to continue with the structural problems until you deal with entitlements.